river me so river, river me so valley, valley me so rain, live on in the valley. Welcome to the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. My name is Jason Sacco and I'm your host. As a 35 plus year spondy, I'm looking to use this show to bring the spondy community closer. I'll give my lifelong battle with AS to you. That includes triumphs, tragedies, and lessons. So sit back, enjoy, and know you are not alone. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. This is going to be a really neat episode we'll jump into in a minute. Uh, We gathered up a few people who all have ankylosing spondylitis from different countries and we got together on Zoom and talked about it. One of the people was from the United States. She was just diagnosed, you know, I think within like a couple weeks and everything was brand new to her and she was waiting to go to her rheumatologist this upcoming week. Uh, to have her first appointment dealing with what types of medications and, and what, what are her options. Uh, there's a very touching, deep story uh, from two people, one in Ireland and one in Canada, and the issues they dealt with as they went through that type of managed healthcare program to actually get a diagnosis. And then there's another gentleman and myself who talk about our diagnosis situations in the United States. Uh, on top of that, I want to tell everybody there's a number of ways to support the show, and I really appreciate it when people do that. Recently, uh, we had Melissa go out to buymeacoffee.com and pledge a few coffees to the Ankylosing Spondylitis podcast, and she left a great message. Melissa wrote, thanks for this podcast. I love it. It's encouraging and shines such a positive light on my life. Well, Melissa, thank you for supporting the show, and I'm glad that it helps. So if you want, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, look for the AS podcast, and I really appreciate anything that you do. It helps to keep the show going. There's also a link in the show notes to it. In addition, in the show notes, you'll find a link to a couple of products that I've developed an affiliate relationship with. One of them is with Joy Organics. They make CBD products, and they're organic, made in the United States with a fantastic money-back guarantee, and they always run all sorts of different offers for free this or free that of other products to sample things. So I would encourage you to go to the link in the show notes. doesn't change the price. doesn't change anything for you, except it does. they do give a small feedback to the show to help support it. So I appreciate anybody that is looking for fantastic Uh, CBD products. That is a company that I highly recommend. In addition, I've got a new product that I've used a lot in the past, and the company is called Foria. This product is designed for women, but I used it because I used it with my, at the time, ex-wife, and I've used it with other partners. And Foria Awaken is an intimacy lubricant that contains CBD. If you want to experience something completely unique and, and new, go to the Foria link in the show notes and read about the products and see if any of those work for you. Again, I have an affiliate relationship with them. It does not change the price, does not take away any of the you know discounts and anything that you can get with them. It's simply they give a small feedback to the show if you buy anything. So thank you. And then last but not least, one of the things I'm super excited about is we've jumped up to 93 countries in total. We had both Colombia and Paraguay, listeners from those two countries, come aboard and start listening to the Ankylosing Spondylitis podcast. So we're up to 93 countries where somebody that has some affiliation or association with Ankylosing Spondylitis has listened to the show and that really that ties us all together. Forget about skin color. Forget about religion. None of that matters. We're all the same. We're all afflicted by ankylosing spondylitis, and we can all learn from each other. And that's what I like is it brings us all together, and nothing else matters. We can all get together and talk about ankylosing spondylitis, our experiences, and then how we can you know, help others that are just being diagnosed or those that are feeling lost or, or whatever. So again, I thank you. I hope you enjoy this show. It starts right off and it's a little bit of a long one, but a lot of good information. So y'all take care and I can't wait to talk to you in the future. 
my name is Lindsay. I am from Pennsylvania. I was very recently diagnosed um, with this within the past two weeks. I'm, you know, very unfamiliar with this disease as it is, so I'm, just, I'm kind of joining here. I started with really bad, bad, extreme back pain about a year and a half ago, and I was at three different orthopedic doctors. I was at a podiatrist. I was every doctor known to man, and no one knew what was wrong with me. And as a matter of fact, I was in my chiropractor's office, and he had told me his father was diagnosed with something similar to this, and maybe I should look into getting an MRI and blood work and all of that. So I kind of harassed my, my general practitioner, and they did give me an MRI, and they found, I guess, the Romanus lesions within my MRI. And then I went to see a rheumatologist, and he told me that's what, what this is. So I don't even have any medication yet. I'm just kind of newly diagnosed with this. Wow. Well, welcome to the club that nobody wants to join. <laughs> you know, that, you're definitely going to get the trophy for the newest, I think, the newest diagnosis in this group. And Michelle, now you're in Ireland. Tell us a little bit about how you were diagnosed and what it's like in Ireland. Um, well, my symptoms started when I was quite young. I was only about 14 or 15, but they they never really acknowledged the symptoms that I was having. I must have went to the doctor about 50 times when I was in when I was a teenager and they just said, oh, it's probably IBS because I had some bowel problems as well. They thought I had a lot of anxiety, but like obviously when you feel unwell, it's going to make you anxious. And then I kind of just gave up. I stopped going. I had a few bad flare-ups in my early 20s, which made me go back and they did some tests and they were always okay. And then when I got pregnant, my symptoms escalated majorly. So when I had my first baby, I was almost non-functional. And at that point, they kept putting all my symptoms down to pregnancy. And they said I might have some postnatal depression and things like that. So it took about three years since after my first child was born to get a diagnosis. It was like, it was kind of like a light bulb moment. One day when I was in the doctor's, he realized that I was complaining of a lot of rib and sternum pain. And then he asked me about my back and I told him my back has been bad for years. So then he ordered the genetic testing and the MRIs and there was significant damage to my lower back. So I was diagnosed as soon as I saw the rheumatologist. But the healthcare system here is very slow. Everything takes a long time. So it was about 18 months before I did any treatment. And during that time, my symptoms were very aggressive. So it was a long wait and <laughs> 18 months in pain probably feels like 18 years, you know, but we got there in the end. So from well, the time you talked about the sternum and, and chest pain and the doctor started putting the pieces together, it took another additional 18 months after that for treatment? Yeah, I actually had to get on the computer myself and beg for an appointment because I, I had just had a really vicious flare-up and my partner called an ambulance because I, I had such major panic attacks. I thought I was dying. And when I got to the hospital, they wouldn't help me. And I, I was so defeated and so upset. Like I asked them, would they try to speed up my referral? And they said, no, there's nothing they can do to help me. So then I went home and I wrote to the consultant myself. And I wrote her a really detailed letter. And then she saw me four weeks later. I probably could have gotten there much sooner, you know, if I had a doctor behind me fighting with me. But unfortunately, the GP that was figuring it out, he retired shortly after I was diagnosed. I kind of just got lost in the system then. So I was kind of, I just felt very alone with the diagnosis. So is that type of response common in the Irish medical care system that you have to be such a, there's, there's being an advocate for yourself and then there's being, having to, you know, just jump go through, through what, what you did. <laughs> I don't even know what the right word is for it. I think it depends on who your doctor is. Like, that the GP that I that originally got me diagnosed, he was ringing everybody, picking up the phone, saying, this is urgent, you need to hear today. And then they'd listen and they'd see me. But when he retired, I kind of just got lost. I didn't have a good primary care doctor. So I was getting nowhere on my own then. Like very isolated, very alone, trying to come to terms with a new diagnosis without any medical support. It was very hard. So it was the bureaucracy of it is what you got lost in. Yeah. Like the waiting lists are very long, so you need a strong doctor fighting for you to try and to get pushed up the list. Now, as a side note, you started making a vlog on your experiences with ankylosing spondylitis. And for people that listen to this, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But what prompted you to do that? I just felt like 
like I, I want to make this a positive story in my life. I don't want to, I don't want it to, like it's going to be a part of me forever. So I want to help other people come to terms with their diagnosis and help like put them in the right direction as well, because my journey was so hard and it was so long and I didn't know which tests I needed or which doctor to see or I had, I had no idea what to do because I'm the first person in my family to be diagnosed with any sort of autoimmune disease as well. So it was just a major, major challenge. So I just thought that it might, like sharing my story might help other people, especially oh, yeah. the newly diagnosed. Because I know that when you're first diagnosed, it's so daunting and there's a lot of anxiety and it's very scary. So it's good to have that support. And Lindsay will attest to that. It's a whole different ballgame. You start getting terminology thrown at you and what may or may not happen. I can understand to a degree. I can't relate only because I was diagnosed so long ago. There was no internet. There was no nothing. You were said, and I was also 14. So the doctor said, you have ankylosing spondylitis. Good luck. We'll see you in six months. And that was 1984. There was no internet. At best, you could look it up in an encyclopedia, and I couldn't even spell it. Nobody in my family had it. Nowadays, when somebody like you gets it, Lindsay, I just imagine the amount of information that flows at you is like trying to take a drink out of a water hose at full bore. You know, you you get blown over. Sorry, didn't mean to go out of order. And next up, Angie, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, I'm Angie. I uh, am originally from California. I lived in Montana. I live in Minnesota now. Might be moving to Kentucky soon. My husband has been military, um, so we've moved a bit. But I've had symptoms since, well, going back into like around eight years old, I was in gymnastics and I could never do a backbend. And then when I was 15, I remember starting to get this really intense low back pain anytime I would sleep on my stomach. And so I stopped sleeping on my stomach and it kind of went away. But then I would, I would get neck pain sometimes that was unexplained. And then in my mid twenties, I started getting these really bad flares where I'd be at work and I couldn't stand up. And I went to the urgent care and they gave me a shot of Toradol and told me to, you know, go and rest (laughs) and didn't see anything important on x-ray. So they, they just released me with perfectly fine health, just a pulled muscle. And I had a few other instances in my late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties. And I finally was diagnosed at 37. We had just moved to the Minneapolis area and I was an incredibly stressful move. I was having this really, really intense pain just everywhere. It was awful. I'd never been in so much pain in my life. And I was still trying to do all the things that a mother of three needs to do. And it was so bad. It was the first day that my husband had to go back to work. I had to call him home because I couldn't get out of bed. So he took me to the urgent care and they did a preliminary diagnosis there. Um, Since I had fallen on the stairs, they did an x-ray and they saw that my SI joints had fusion. Then I went to the rheumatologist a few months later and they confirmed it. And that was five years ago almost. It was just, it was hard. And over the last few years, I've, I I started just on NSAID and that worked fairly well. I'd still get some minor flares with those. Um, And then last year, my rheumatologist, I was in California for a couple of years again. My rheumatologist there started me on sulfasalazine, but I was having some stomach issues with it. So he backed me off like half dose. So I did that. And then my new rheumatologist, again, here in Minneapolis area, she said, no, that's not really something that's going to prevent fusion. So she convinced me to try Humira. And I tried Humira and Humira didn't work for me after a month. It was making the the pain worse. So then I tried Cosentix and I've been on that for the last uh, two months. And how do you find Cosentix? So far, I'm doing a lot better. I did have a pretty significant flare last week, but my SI joints weren't hurting for a change. (laughs) You know, if you can get the flare without major joint pain. Yeah. I mean, most of my joints were hurting, but those weren't. So for some reason, those weren't. Well, good. That was a positive change. And switching over here, we've also got Jed. Welcome to the conversation, Jed. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, my name is Jed. Uh, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis when I was 12 years old back in 1994. And much like Jason, my diagnosis was, well, you have AS, 
sucks to be you. We'll see you. You know, I mean, I don't think I ever actually went back to my rheumatologist because even then there was no medications that they could give a 12 year old. So it was just, well, stretch a lot, stay physical and, you know, hope for the best. And, you know, for many years that worked out quite well until my early twenties when the AS just caught up with me. And actually I had to be minded that I had AS. I totally forgot about it. And I went to, I was having all this pain and stiffness and stuff. And I went to another rheumatologist and they're like, Hey, you know, we think you might have this ankylosing spondylitis. I thought, Oh yeah, I do have that. You know, I, I just, just, I I didn't think about it. I just, you know, I just went along like, all right, well, I forgot I had it. And, you know, because there's no treatment for it. You know, we we started the the medicinal track there. I've I've been on lots of different things, uh, used pretty much every NSAID possible. And I had to stop those for a while because uh, they were absolutely destroying my liver. But I just got a new NSAID yesterday that I haven't actually started yet. And I don't remember the name of it, but they said it should be good. So I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, I, uh, much like Michelle, I try to use my diagnosis to inspire people, to lead people. Founder of the support group Living with Ankylosing Spondylitis on Facebook. And uh, I do some local support group meetings for the Spondylitis Association of America. It gives my disease uh, pride and purpose, you know, so that I'm not just hurting, that I'm actually using my knowledge, my experience uh, to lead people. Yeah, it's, it's really great to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to be able to talk about AS with a group of fine individuals like this. Oh, great. And next we've got Erlen, our lone Canadian on. Erlen, how are you doing today? I'm doing so-so. I'm in a lot of pain because I've been switched from Humera to Brenzies, which is a knockoff brand of Embrel. I failed Remicade um, after five years, and then I failed Humera within six months. And now I'm trying Brenzies, and hopefully that will get me back on track. Well, and if it, it's just me on this, but, you know, you didn't fail anything. It just didn't work for you. You know, I, it, this is not a it's direction that you, Erilyn, is it, oh, it drives me. It's the terminology that they use, right? I, like I know. And, well, yeah, and kick them in the shins next time. You didn't fail anything. <laughs> it needs to change. Because there's no way to, at this time, there's no way to know which medicines are going to work best for you. So unlike, uh, say, if a cancer patient, they can do blood work on them and, and narrow down the best type of cancer med that will treat whatever ailment or version of cancer they're dealing with. We don't have that yet. They're working on it. It was cool to find out that they are working on that. But like, you know, many of us, you'd play that biologic, uh, guess what's going to work for me game. And you just start taking them until you find the one that works and you ride that pony until you can't ride it anymore. And then you go on to the next one. And hopefully, you know, we see this stuff now that it works. Somebody says, oh, it worked for me five, six, seven years. I'm thinking that that's great. That's five, six, seven years that it kept everything at bay. Let's find the next one because this medication's changing. So uh, sorry, didn't mean to hijack it. Erilyn, oh, tell us a okay, little bit I'm about fine. how you are doing besides the switch over to the new, to the new biologic. So my story is a little bit different than everybody else's. I had a really hard time getting diagnosed. I started with symptoms in my early 20s. I'm 35 for reference um, to the time frame that I'm talking about. What ended up happening was I had symptoms. I went to the doctor. They did a bunch of tests. They tested me for Crohn's disease. I went through all that process. They just chalked it up to IBS. And then uh, the pain was worse. So then they diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And then the pain got to the point where I start losing my bowel movements and I was becoming incontinent. And so I went to the hospital and they said that there was nothing wrong with me and released me. Then from that point, I went back to the doctors and I went to the doctors several times and they just kept on saying it was my fibromyalgia and that it could be depression. So I went on medication for fibromyalgia and depression and that didn't do anything. Then they switched me to other medications that I can't even remember all the names of, but one was gabapentin and several other medications to control the pain. And then it got to the point where I couldn't walk anymore. My legs just would not walk. I couldn't make it to the bathroom without using a walker. It got so bad that I was using a urinal to that point. And I'm sorry if I'm graphic. It just, it's really, it was really tough. It was really hard. And I went back to the hospital and they sent me instead to MRI and everything. Nothing showed. I did an EMG, which is where they test for your electrical um, 
how your nerves are working. And that showed that there was something wrong there in my legs, but they still stated that I had herniated discs. So they chalked it up to herniated discs. And then from that point, they just told me to go home and it's just herniated discs, your fibromyalgia. And they sent me to psych. Then the psych person ended up telling me that, oh, it's just depression. So I went back to my family doctor. My family doctor said that there's nothing that they can do and they don't believe anything's wrong. And then I get a phone call when I was out shopping saying, you need to go to the hospital right this minute. I believe you have a quad syndrome and that is a, a severe neurological syndrome where the bundle of your nerves at the end of the spine end up being crushed you can be paralyzed for the rest of your life so it was really serious so I go to the hospital I explained to them what my doctor believed I told them to phone my doctor because he told me to come to the hospital and so they finally admit me and they finally sent me to a bunch of doctors and they couldn't come up with anything. So they ended up sending me to psych. It was diagnosed as psychosomatic. And I was told that it was all in my head. They had me try to walk with walkers. I had a nurse pull up on my belt. And then because I wasn't moving quick enough, she pulled up on my underwear, released myself out of the hospital because I was treated like I was lying, that I didn't, I wasn't really in that much pain, that I was making it out to be where I couldn't walk. And I released myself out of hospitals that I was never going to the doctors again. And then about four months after that happened, my eyes started flaring and it was all different funny shape. And I, it was really red and oozy and really terrible. And I went to the hospital, reluctantly went to the hospital and they sent me to an ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist looked at my hands. He goes, you have swelling in your hands and are you hurting anywhere else? And I'm like, I'm in a lot of pain all the time. And there's nothing wrong with me though, that they told me. And he's like, no, there's something seriously wrong with you. And your eyes telling us that story. And he goes, I think you have ankylosing spondylitis. I'm sorry to tell you that you've lost 40% of your vision in your right eye because you didn't come soon enough because the iritis did damage. And this was because I was so scared to go to the hospital because they were just going to tell me nothing was wrong. Yeah. So I was very fearful of going to hospitals and very fearful of going to the doctors because nobody believed me anyway. So then I finally got a rheumatologist appointment six months after that. I was officially diagnosed with AS and they had to get fluid out of my ankles and my hands. Um, there was a whole big thing. And now my regime looks like, well, now the new Brenzies, I have an NSAID. I'm on blood pressure medications that controls for the NSAID because it can cause um, high blood pressure. And I'm also with a pain care clinic. I didn't go on any narcotics because of the stigma around narcotics, unfortunately. Um, so I get, I call them back shots but uh, they are, uh, there's a specific name for them. Steroid injection. Yeah, the steroid injection, yeah. but also it's, there's a lidocaine mixture with, so it's yeah. trigger point injections. Yeah. Um, and I get them every week and there's about 20 of them that I get up and down my spine every single week to control for pain. And that's the only thing that I have to control for pain at this current time. And narcotics are really hard to get by the government and it's really difficult to get anything for pain relief for chronic conditions here in Canada because of the opiate crisis crisis that's happening. Wow. Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. It's really, or really <laughs> explains that as we've all gone through the diagnosis, it's a puzzle that needs to be put together. Some are diagnosed easier than others. I'm curious, we have four ladies on. Have any of you been told that you had degenerative disc disease? Yeah. No. Who said yes? Me. I'm still waving on, on MRIs. <laughs> okay. I wondered in one of the forums, it might've been yours, Jed, there was asked a question about who had degenerative disc disease and there was three or four hundred responses they were probably 95 percent ladies and they almost all had been told they had degenerative disc disease before they were diagnosed with as and i almost wonder if that's a way for the doctors to push the person out the door with a designation a disease for insurance purposes so they can give them meds and get them on their way because the doctor is not putting the pieces together it's strictly a guess on my part i don't yeah. know if it's true or not. I'd love to see somebody do some deeper research on it. I think um, women have a disadvantage when it comes to ankylosing spondylitis because it's still largely seen as a man's disease. I've had physiotherapists say to me, you can't have AS. There is no way. Yep. Do you want to look yes. at my MRIs? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, in Michael Mallinson, in one of my prior episodes, made a comment, president of the Canadian Spondylitis Association, and he made a comment that as we're looking now, there's non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and there's AS. And he said two-thirds of the people with the non-radiographic are women, roughly. These are these are ballpark. And one-third of non-radiographic is men. Two-thirds of AS are men. One-third roughly are women. So on par, it's about 50-50 men to women that have the disease. It's all in how it is starting in your body and how it's progressed or where, what mark it's at in you. So using Angie as an example, you may have shown full on AS with complete SI damage where Ariel, you weren't, or I'm sorry, Erlyn, you weren't showing the SI damage, but you had all the I, pain. No, no, I'm just I saying as an example. Anything. Right. So that makes it even harder for them to put it together and say, well, we know what ankylosing spondylitis is. We didn't read up on the newest stuff coming out on axial spondyloarthritis because face it, we see a lot more people with rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis than we do with the AS. So guess what we read the most? Guess what more of their focus is, is put on is say rheumatoid arthritis. So then somebody presents with all the pain symptoms of AS, but no damage. Are they really somebody that's just seeking out the drugs? Are yeah, they somebody that's yeah. just, you know, what are we dealing with here? And oh, I've only been seeing Erilyn. This is only my first visit with her. I'm not putting my med license on the line to write her a script for narcs. Good luck. Here's some NSAIDs and, and I hope you feel better in six months. So from a doctor's standpoint, I, I think they're putting a rock in a hard place sometimes. Could they do better follow-up maybe? I, I have a very hard time. I had a fantastic rheumatologist, all of them. So my example is different, but Erilyn, you look like you wanted to say something regarding uh, follow-up. I think the biggest problem is, is that here in Canada, you have 15 minutes to tell your story of what's going on with you. You can only do one symptom at a time. There's big like notes on the walls and everything that state one symptom and 15 minutes with the doctor. You don't get more time and you only can talk about one, one thing at a time. And I think that's where they're missing the big picture in a lot of cases because there's so much that could be going on with a person, but they can't, they have to only talk about the pressing matter at that moment, not the entire picture. And I think that's where they're missing a lot of the overall symptoms of everything. Interesting. That's really yeah. a shame. That's that's mm -hmm. so not right. Because I mean, it's because it, AS especially is not just one symptom. It is a lot of symptoms together. And yeah, I mean, yeah, if you break it down, my back hurts. Okay, that's your one symptom for today. Uh, that could be anything. I don't know. I mean, that, that's just wrong, that you know? Their medicine on that. Uh, you can't put anything together with one symptom. Now, Angie, are you, is your husband still military? Yeah, he is. Active duty? So he's going to have TRICARE. Yeah. And that allows you to go to any doctor. As, as long as it's covered by TRICARE. If it's like with us, we don't live right next to an active base. So um, we don't have to use military facilities. We can go to the civilian doctors, um, but they have to be covered by TRICARE or you pay the point of service fee, or if you get it authorized to go to a non-network provider, then you can do that. Okay. And Michelle, being that you're in Ireland and it's also a socialized medicine like Air Lynn's, are, are you allowed that same thing? You go into a doctor and it's one thing that you can talk about, or are they fairly open to numerous items? I felt like I was going in there every single week with a new symptom and they were never connecting the dot. Or they were never realizing that there's something wrong here. You know, they brushed off all my symptoms to something minor. There was no tests done. I, I I had two pregnancies quite close together. My two sons are 17 months apart. So that put me at a disadvantage as well. Because mm -hmm. every, like when, when I got pregnant the second time, I just gave up. I said, there is no point. So I just told the doctor I need some physio. And I just went, I just got on with it. Even though I was like barely able to walk, I was using crutches and like pretty much non-functional for the whole pregnancy. But I knew that that would halt any sort of movement with my diagnosis. So I just gave up. But then I got very sick after I had my second. And I was lucky that the doctor finally realized something's wrong here. And oh. I, I actually saw an osteopath when my second baby was a few days old because I couldn't stand up straight and I couldn't walk. And he's, the first thing he said to me was, this isn't pregnancy related. And he said, there is something wrong. So he urged me to go back to the doctor and keep pushing and keep fighting. So it was about a year later than when I was diagnosed. 
But for two and a half years, they kept telling me that it's all pregnancy related and I just wasn't getting anywhere with them. And you feel defeated. Like it, it would take up all my energy and strength to get to the doctor and then having to mind two babies in there waiting two hours to be seen and then trying to like manage the babies in the doctor's office while trying to tell them what's wrong. You know, it was exhausting. It was a very, it was just such a hard process. I was so, I was actually one of the, I was happy that I had radiographic evidence. I was relieved. I, I, like, I, I didn't care that I had damage. I was like, at least now they can't deny it and they can't call it fibromyalgia. They can't dismiss me anymore. So you didn't, Michelle, you didn't have any relief during pregnancy. Angie, you have children, correct? Yeah, I do. I have three. Did you get any relief? Did you go into a remission during pregnancy? Sort of. Toward the, well, with my first two, they were girls. And I had like these awful migraines during the second trimester. And I remember toward the end of the pregnancy, the, the low back pain was so intense. And with all three of them, actually. But they just dismissed it as normal pregnancy, low back. Um, you know, I had three different providers for each of my my uh, pregnancies because they were, you know, different areas for each one. And everybody said, oh, it's just your, you know, low back, normal pregnancy thing. But it was so intense right at the SI joints. And I knew something was off, but I, like the doctor, wrote it off to pregnancy. And then with my third, I actually had really, really bad um, symphysis pubis dysfunction, or the the front part of the pelvis where it comes together. That's your symphysis pubis. It's a joint. It's one of the three joints in your pelvis. And that one was giving out and separating all the time. And it hurt like hell. It was awful. Yeah. And I had no idea at the time, this was my third baby. And I had no idea at the time that I had uh, ankylosing spondylitis. So I didn't realize that, you know, my SI joints were probably fused at that point. So that was the only joint that was flexible and it was taking all the brunt of everything. And I thought, oh, I'll be like everybody else. And once pregnancy is done and I give birth, I'll be fine. And it didn't work that way. So after seven months, of dealing with it, I finally went back to my midwife and said, hey, I really need some PT for this. It really hurts. And it helped. But even now, my son is six years old, and I still have issues with it. You know, if I, uh, I, I like to rock climb. And when I do certain movements, it aggravates that joint, and it hurts for a few days. So definitely <laughs> still impedes my life. Sure. Now, Lindsay, have you have you had any children? I do. I have three. I have three kids. Three. And did you experience any type of remission or less pain, so to speak, when you were um, pregnant? I, I had pretty bad back pain with all three of them. Um, my doctor actually told me I was having like the, the lower back like contractions with my metal one because it was so bad and so intense. But like Angie, they just said it was like pregnancy related. So, mm-hmm. and I mean, I never really had this intense pain like this in, until. February of 2019. I mean, it, little little here and there, but never to this degree where, I mean, it completely affects my functionality and my ability to do things during the day. And Erilyn, do you have any children? I do. I have a 16-year-old now, but during that time, I didn't know that I had ankylosing spondylitis at all. I was only 18 at the time, and I didn't really have flare-ups other than my knees, but I didn't, again, I didn't know. And I had a really horrible time during the labor and delivery. It was really hard because my hips weren't going as wide as they should and we had some complications getting my son out of the birth canal because my hips just weren't flexible and they they kept on saying to me well, do you have any problems have you broken your hip before have do you have any problems with your hips yeah, they were trying to figure out why I wasn't separating like I should during labor and delivery and I had no answer for them I had nothing I couldn't say anything but I had a lot of back pain during the labor and delivery even with the epidural in and uh, it was just a really hard labor and delivery it was 77 hours to get mm-hmm. the little guy into the world because everything was just so slow Jed I'm not going to ask you well yeah because my my no no <laughs> 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 I, I will I will say though if you if while we're talking about kids that I 
I, I have four nieces and nephews. I, they, they, when they come to visit, oh boy, like they, they really put, poof, put, you know, like I, I had a couple of years ago developed no ups policy with them that sorry, I, I, you know, this goes for all of you. I'm not picking you up anymore because, you know, <laughs> I, the, the drive to be the fun uncle was always way too much, you know, that, ah, oh, it's okay. I'll sacrifice my body for a week of, no, I was one week of them climbing on me and I couldn't, I couldn't function for the rest of the year. So, but yeah, no, other, no childbirth experience uh, for me. Sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to make it clear that like, look, I, I can't do it. So don't ask me because if you ask me, I'm going to say yes. And that's the wrong choice. So I just said straight up, don't ask me. Well, we can play other ways, but I cannot pick you up and no piggyback rides either. <laughs> now, Angie, you said you like to rock climb. So I'm assuming there's been no joint replacement with you yet. No, I haven't. No, I've, I've, I found that it actually helps me most of the time. If I'm having a lot of pain, if I go climb, it gets my whole body moving and I feel better afterwards. And then any pain that I do have, I attribute to my awesome workout. So it's kind of a, a win-win. There are times though that it doesn't help and it just, it doesn't really aggravate it, but it doesn't make it better either. Okay. Everybody is in climates that get cold weather, like, dislike cold. How, how does it affect you? Cold is the absolute worst thing ever. I mean, humidity is bad too, but I will, I will take a hot and humid day over a freezing cold day. I can't stand it. I, I literally, I'm not fused that much, but I feel like I'm a hundred percent fused all the way up and down all my joints um, when it's cold. Uh, I, uh, I used to live in Vietnam where it was like 110 degrees every single day. That was my prime environment. My wife was living in Russia and she's like, hey, you want to come to Russia? No, I cannot, I cannot do that. So yeah, hate the cold. Warm is good. Michelle, what's the weather like in Ireland? It's mostly mild, but we do have cold winters. And I'm the same. During the cold weather, I have to have a scarf on my neck. And like I'll stiffen severely in the cold weather. Like we we attempted to go for a walk one evening at about 6 p.m. I didn't realize how cold it was. And I literally got to the edge of my neighborhood and I had to turn back because my whole body just seized up. So I think if it gets to minus five or even, even minus one, I'm done. I have to wrap up really warm and stay inside. And that's Celsius. Yeah. Minus one. Okay. Yeah, that's that's my chilly for us very... too. You start thinking minus one Fahrenheit and we're like, yeah, I'm with you. I'll curl. I'm going inside yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, did you experience that? Is is the cold weather affect you in I, a negative way? I don't think so. I mean, I was okay. I mean, up until like May, the stiffness and the pain last year too got really, really bad. So I'm thinking the warmer weather is, is bothering me more. I'm usually okay in the winter, but I'm kind of new to this. So I'm still not, I mean, last winter, I wasn't even paying attention to, you know, what was going on. I'm like, I'm just feeling this pain. You will know. You'll notice patterns now, now that you have a diagnosis, you know, it might take you a year or two to to notice things that seem to trigger you. And Erlyn, I saw you shaking your head. You're right on Lake, uh, what is it, Lake Ontario? Yes, I'm right on Lake Ontario and cold weather for me, it gets so severe that I actually use a wheelchair during the winter months because I actually lose, your body tries to trap in heat. So when my body does that, it cuts off some sensation to my legs. So I can't really feel them that much. And so it's safer for me to be in a wheelchair than it is for me to actually walk during the winter months. It's mentally hard to go from walking to a wheelchair. It, it just, it's not where I like being and it's, and I don't like being pushed around, but that's, that's basically what I have to do during the winter months here. And it gets like negative 21 and that's Celsius <laughs> with wind chills. I would not cope at all. And I've said my story numerous times on the show, but diagnosed when I was, well, I started having problems when I was nine or 10, around 1979, 1980. Couldn't always run. You know, as a nine, 10 year old boy, you should be running, you know, up a wall anywhere. And I just couldn't, not that I didn't want to, just couldn't. It was attributed to growing pains for a number of years. And, you know, we had a family friend that was a chiropractor and he was whacking and stacking at me and, you know, just kept cracking, popping, breaking, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And to his credit, he said, what I'm doing should be helping it. But since it's not, now this was four years into it. So since it's not, there's something else going on here. And I, when I was, when I was been about 13 and where I live right now, the closest rheumatologist at that time was about 80 miles away. So they made an appointment and I was able to get in in January, February of 
84. I walked in. This goes back to what a lot of y'all said. I walked in and he asked me, he says, what, what's your background, your nationality? And I said, well, my family's Maltese. He said, okay. He says, squeeze, he put out his fingers. He says, squeeze, squeeze my fingers as hard as you can. So I did. He says, okay, stand up straight. And he, he said, now turn around. He took his hand on my lower back and he pushed and he says, is this sore, painful? And I said, yeah, very. And he says, you have ankylosing spondylitis. Now let's go do all the, the work to prove what I'm telling you I think you have. And I say this because I hear all these stories about these years and years and years. And me, I just walked into a rheumatologist. I'm like, everybody just must get, you know, you just walk into a rheumatologist. They tell you, you got ankylosing spondylitis and away you go. And then I hear oh these folks gosh. that go for years and years and years. And I'm like, golly, that really sucks. So he did the blood test. It came back HLA B24. Of course, both of my parents are first generation American. So there wasn't any family history prior to it. Nobody else had anything wrong with them. Um, so I, you know, I drew the lucky straw. And at that time it was 84. So away you go. Um, they, and it was funny. I can remember one of the tests to, to check out what I had is I had to go for the full body x-ray. They wanted to see the damage in my full body. So they inject you with this radioactive dye and you lay on a table and the x-ray machine went down one side of you and went down the other side. You know, it, it went down and back like you were going through a car wash almost. And you have this, you're filled with this dye and it showed them at that point where the inflammation was, where there was damage. And at 14, I already had SI joint damage. By 21, I had my left hip replaced. By 23, I had my right hip replaced. Fast forward, I moved to Arizona in 96. And much like Jed, that hot weather, that was like an off switch to AS. I very rarely had problems. It was great. For me, the hotter and the drier it is, the better I do. Didn't even think much about it until my company moved me to Texas. Still hot, but much more humid. And man, it was like somebody started taking a sledgehammer to me. Well, I had done anything for AS in 10 years, eight years, going to the doctor, I've got AS. All right. And it was at, again, at the same time, here's NSAIDs and then um, Celebrex. Celebrex was brand new on the market. So that was, I was on that until just last year, had two more hip replacements done on the left hip. They did it in August of 2010. It broke in 2010 of August. So I went back in in September of 2010 to have it done again. And that's caused all sorts of problems. So I, I can certainly feel for all of you that go through these different um, battles with doctors to try and get diagnosed. Is everybody on, as you take a look at the meds, I, I strictly take a biologic now, some allergy meds, and gabapentin. Is everybody on an NSAID besides me to try and control the pain? I am. Celebrex. Celebrex? Okay. Good stuff. I'm on Celebrex. Yeah. Like I said, I was off NSAIDs for a long time, but I'm going to start putting them on again because my peripheral joints have just been inflamed lately. So, um, but yeah, I was like you, biologic, gabapentin, and allergy. Those are my three, like, you know, pills that I was taking. But yeah, I'm adding on the NSAIDs back again. So hopefully they work this time. Yeah, the, the gabapentin was a interesting meta. They put me on Lyrica first, post-surgery for a nerve. The doctor damaged the nerves in my left leg when he did the last surgery. So I've, I've got neuropathy now. I've got no feeling and a drop foot in my left foot. And so I've asked him numerous times to amputate that leg because at least I could then reach my foot. I could take my leg off to tie my shoe and stuff that I, you know, I can't reach my foot right now. And I have zero temperature control, I guess. My body cannot moderate the temperature of that left lower limb. So that's where the cold really bothers me is it if it's ice cold out, that leg will be ice cold and I can't feel it. It's definitely a challenge and definitely interesting. But yeah, I've been pushing close to 4,000 milligrams of GABA Penton a day. I've knocked that off a little bit, but not much, or else I can't stand the pain from that that left lower limb. Yeah, that sounds really good. That's definitely the record I've heard from Gabapentin, so well done. Oh. <laughs> the Lyrica did nothing. Yeah. I know some people love the Lyrica, but for me, Lyrica didn't didn't touch it. It so. made me really swell, the Lyrica. I was retaining water and sweating, mm. so I had to stop it. I was very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if the medications aren't worse than the disease. <laughs> 
you know. True story. Sorry, I'm not trying to scare you, Lindsay. I'm going. She's <laughs> great, great yeah, Lindsay. Yeah. Don't worry. You know, it, seriously, AS and all the treatments, it's a total breeze. You know, yeah, we're, just, totally. we're just being dramatic for the podcast. You're fine. She's <laughs> taking down notes up there saying, don't take this. Don't take this. Good God, don't give me this. <laughs> Cancel my doctor's appointments. <laughs> but it is also possible to lead a really, really full, active life with it, depending on your progression, depending on your medication and how well it's controlled. I know for me, I, like I do fine in the cold weather and I live here in Minnesota. It gets to, you know, negative 30 sometimes Fahrenheit. And I do fine. I actually, if it's really, really severe weather, either way, hot or cold, I, it, I don't move as much. So I get stiff. So that is what flares me more. And then, but I'm on, you know, the, the, the biologic, the Cosentix. I'm on naproxen, which is an NSAID. I'm on gabapentin for some nerve stuff that I've got, antidepressant, an allergy pill, tramadol when it's really bad. So my lovely med list. <laughs> Yeah, I've whittled most of mine down, like I said, just to the... The Cosentix has really been a game changer for me. Yeah, I'm hoping it is for me too. That, I did the loading dose. And, and Lindsay, so that you might be aware, with some medicines, you do a loading dose where you'll do a whole bunch of it up front to get it heavy into your system. With Cosentix, which is a biologic, many times they'll have you do five shots in five weeks. And then you'll skip to a once a month shot. And I know for myself, by about the third shot... I was going, huh, we're onto something here. This is pretty good stuff. And by the fifth shot, I was I was feeling pretty good. I was on Humira for about almost five years. And then my, and I was doing weekly. And then my uh, rheumatologist, I went to a rheumatologist and she said, oh no, you can't do it weekly. The, the FDA says it's it's every other week you can't you know and if we, we could give you a uh, rheumatoid arthritis you could totally use it for that but not for ankylosing spondylitis which is like what you know <laughs> so i went to a neurotologist and then i got put on emerald did you know that humera in canada you cannot get the citrate three it you it's not approved here i heard that from my canadian friends and that is very sad i'm sorry yeah it's it's a pretty painful shot so yeah i i didn't know how painful it was until i tried the citrate free and realized that there was no pain whatsoever and I was like oh I get it now that makes sense <laughs> when I took okay. Humira that was the first no Embro was the first one they put me on and I liked my rheumatologist but he had a bit of a sadist streak apparently because <laughs> he said here's the meds keep it in the fridge give yourself a shot once a month he never mentioned to take it out of the fridge oh, oh, God. Him. and so I'd take that thing out of the fridge ro you know roll the syringe between my hands a couple times and give myself a <laughs> A shot. Finally, after about three months, I went and I says, this stuff hurts. And he's like, well, what do you mean it hurts? I said, my God, it, I said, putting it in, it's cold. It hurts. He goes, what do you mean it's cold? So I take it out of the fridge and I give myself the shot. He says, no, you dope. Let it warm up to room temperature and then give yourself the shot. I says, well, you didn't tell me that. And so he says, yeah, that'll make it hurt a lot less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't honestly, I didn't know that either, but I, I, I have this high, high, high pain tolerance. So I was like, ah, whatever. I'm tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, it's a lot better warm. Yeah. It's like pushing syrup into you, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's definitely an interesting disease. Lindsay, you have an appointment you said coming up. Mm -hmm. The 8th of July. I have an appointment with okay. my rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. So this will be your first post-diagnosis appointment? Yes. Yeah. So now that you've listened to an, several people talk about AS over the years, any questions pop to mind that, you know, are you, are you processing all this or is it like really overwhelming? Um, it's a little bit overwhelming, but once my chiropractor mentioned that to me, like I'm, I'm a freak when it comes to like reading, like I need to know what I'm getting myself into. But I mean, it's really interesting to hear about the medications because that's a huge, huge stressor. Is, is the medication even going to work? Because it's so, I mean, the, the stiffness, the, it's just unbearable. And I have a three-year-old at home. So, I mean, that was the biggest thing I was worried about. So hearing all of the things about the medication definitely is easing a lot of the stress that I have. Yeah. Well, and there, there's so many medications now that, you know, it, it, there's a bit of uh, 
you know, give and take and, you know, trial and error, but eventually you will find something that just works great for you. You have options. Another thing too is um, a lot of the groups online, you'll see a lot of people complaining about their pain and it can be really discouraging. It can, which I know it put me in a really bad place for a while and I was really depressed. I mean, I was already depressed anyway with the move and everything, but it, was even more so to see all these people and how bad they were and I was thinking oh my god I'm gonna be like that in a couple of years I mean at 36 years old I felt like I was 90 because I could barely walk in the morning I could barely stand up it was awful um but the medications they do help a lot and you'll get more information you got to filter it sometimes you got to just kind of if someone starts complaining and you're not in a good headspace you really have to filter that okay I did notice that yes I get a little bit more um, bummed out when I read those posts. <laughs> Sometimes I have to just... It's hard. Read them. Yeah. Um, Jason, I do have to go, but well, thank you. Thank you, Angie, for joining us. And you have a wonderful day and, and make sure you. to be careful when you're rock climbing. Don't let any fall on you. <laughs> <laughs> I got my helmet. I'll be good if I'm outside. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Bye. And that's probably one of the key things that Angie just said is filter everything that's said online. There's a ton of good information jed has added me on as a admin to his group and we'll have conversations okay. the background and there's some things i see come through and you're like oh god do i let this come through because i know the storm it's going to create and exactly. a lot of it is some of the function is cross language barrier people will say something like something that might be very common in canada you know, an Ireland might ask it might be offensive in Ireland or, or not make any sense in the United States. Now we're all the same language, so it's not the same, but you can see it create storms. And I would encourage you to just to avoid those. But overall, there's some great people on there. There's some great information and everybody lets their bad days come out in different ways. None are wrong. You just gotta say, okay, I'm going to avoid this today or I'm going to avoid that today and have a little fun with it because the worst thing about AS is that it affects everybody differently. So there's no standard textbook diagnosis. Jed, Erlin, you and me, we all didn't walk in and get the same experience like if we had a toothache. That's the worst thing about ankylosing spondylitis, but in many ways, it's also the best thing about it because it really lets you learn. And I think for somebody new like yourself, um, as long as you don't let it make you into a hypochondriac, you can use it as a, a checklist to say, well, I'm not getting this, this, and this, but I am getting this, this, and this. So I need to ask my doctor about it because I didn't even think about it when I went in there to see him or her last time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And okay. So that's one of the things I'd encourage you to take away. And, and again, there's some very good people from across all the borders to encounter. And Erlyn, you know, you've got a unique story. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of Midwesterners here on the, on the thing right now. So we're all kind of, you know, that same similar weather it affects us all. That's kind of neat to, again, it's the club that nobody wants to belong to. We all have that ability to, to empathize with one another, even though it's not the same, we can kind of understand what everybody's going through. Yep, exactly. And, and I will say that the ankylosing spondylitis community is the best chronic illness community in the entire world. And like we, I don't know what it is, but it's just we got a lot of really good people, a lot of good speakers, but we all really stick together. You know, I've, I've, I've gone to conferences where there's, you know, other disease groups uh, listed and I'm like, oh, you know, you have uh, lupus. So do you know this person? No, I don't know that person. But you go up to me and say, hey, you know this person with AS? Oh yeah, I know that person with AS. I feel like we're all really connected. So, and yeah, get, join those support groups, get to know some people and, uh, and you'll be a part of the, uh, of the super duper awesome club. <laughs> like i said it's very interesting to watch you'll learn who to engage with who not to engage with online but like like jed said there's a lot of good people how i encountered all of you was in one form or fashion online it's really a disease that crosses all races all ethnicities it's very true and i think we're going to see more and more research Hopefully it's good research, but more and more research coming out of China on this because they seem to, with a population of their size, it seems to be a disease that you see a lot of focus on for some reason out of China. And I'm not sure why, but they do seem to have a lot of doctors that study and, and research AS. See, I did not know that, but that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So good. we'll see mm-hmm. something. We'll see stuff come along the pipelines, hopefully. 
I thank everybody for participating. It's been, oh, it's been over an hour now. So thank you so much for everybody being on. I really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to talking to you all in the future. I thank everybody for being on. And, and you guys, again, Michelle, Lindsay, Erlen, Jed, you guys have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks you too, Jason. Thanks for having us on. You all take care. Bye. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye.